There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, we've reached part two in our new series in the history of ideas about the great political fictions. And I'm going to be talking about Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, a book that in many ways can feel quite familiar, but is also really deeply strange. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read great essays on many subjects, including Gulliver's Travels. To subscribe for a special rate, just go to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at lrb.me slash ppf. Like George Orwell's Animal Farm, Gulliver's Travels, which was published in 1726, is one of those books that can be read in very, very different ways, almost as though it was written for completely different kinds of audiences. It has been, in its history, sometimes treated as a book for children, suitable at least for children, though it is often bowdlerized. The scatological bits are taken out, even though I'm sure those are the bits that children like best. But it is a story about tiny people and giants and talking animals. It's an adventure story. It's for children. At the same time, it's clearly a very intricate, detailed, specific satire of early 18th century court politics in England, the age of Queen Anne and then the early Georgian period, the dawn of the party system in England, Tories and Whigs, an age of court intrigue, of religious dissent, and also it's a satire of European high politics. This was the period just after the War of the Spanish Succession. And all of that is being referenced in this text too, but you need to know more than I know about early 18th century politics to get the references it's not just children won't get it. Most adults, including me, won't get it. And the same passages can be read both ways. So I'll just give one example, a well-known example from the first part of the book. When Gulliver, on his first journey, goes to the land of Lilliput, the Lilliputians, who are the tiny people, just a few inches high, and he finds himself living in this crazy world where he's this enormous giant, and the little people are trying to control him. One thing that happens in that part of the book is that the king and queen of Lilliput live in a, a grand palace, these grand royal apartments. And one day there's a fire, and the fire threatens to burn the palace down, and the little Lilliputian fire service is struggling to put it out. Gulliver, luckily, as he tells the readers, the night before has drunk quite a lot of wine, and there's quite a lot in this part of the book about how he drinks wine because it can only be served to him in tiny, tiny little flagons, and he has to sort of amalgamate it into a decent-sized drink, but by this point, they know he likes to drink, so they give him a lot of little bits of wine. And the result is that he has a full bladder, and you don't have to be a sophisticated reader of this book, indeed, it probably helps to be a child, to know exactly where this story is going. Not to mince words, Gulliver puts the fire out by pissing on the palace. 
And children like that part of the book. I think it's probably their favourite bit. At the same time, there's some dispute about what the reference is here, but this is a story that is meant to refer to aspects of the politics of the period, but also Swift's personal experiences of the politics of the period. And one plausible interpretation is actually what this story is about, is what happened to Swift when he published his first satire, which was a bit more than 20 years earlier. In 1704, he published what was then, less so now, a celebrated satirical book called The Tale of the Tub, which is a book taking on, satirizing, mocking religious dissenters, zealots, enthusiasts, the people who were causing a lot of the religious ferment in England at the time. It's a pretty wild book. It's a complicated book. It's quite scurrilous. Swift is one of those people who believe that if you're going to take on the wild and scurrilous people, the dissenters, the people who are undermining the established order, you can't fight them with deference. You can't be polite about them. You've got to fight fire with fire. You've got to fight mockery with mockery. You've got to fight the scurrilous people with some scurrility of your own. And that's what he does. It's, it's an angry book, but it's also pretty disreputable. But he's doing it in the service of the establishment. At that point, Swift was still a Whig. He was on the road to becoming a Tory. But he was already a Tory in many aspects. He was an Anglican clergyman. He was a defender of the established church. He was a defender of the monarchy, the established order. He was doing it for the sake of what we would now call the establishment, which included the Queen, Queen Anne. He was defending her against the people who were trying to mock her and indeed mock her religion trying to undercut it. She didn't like the book. She thought it was disrespectful, not so much disrespectful of her, but disrespectful of religion. She thought the scurrility of the book was a kind of scandal. And as a result, Swift found himself, relatively speaking, ostracized, because the person he was doing this book for turned against him. She thought it was beneath her dignity. In Gulliver's Travels, when he pisses to put the fire out, the king is fine with it. The king accepts the little Lilliputian king that needs must. And when your palace is burning down, you will take any help you can get to put the fire out. But the queen, the Lilliputian queen, is horrified. She can't forgive Gulliver. She can't forgive him for soiling her apartments. She can't forget what had happened. The indignity of it is for her unforgivable, even though he saved her palace from ruin. The Queen is perhaps in this story Queen Anne. Queen Anne, who couldn't forgive Swift for lowering himself to the level of her opponents in order to put them in their place. And it is one of the persistent messages of Gulliver's Travels, one of the things that Swift emphasizes over and over again, the ways in which the high and mighty need people below them to defend them, but their high and mightiness often also leads them to think they're above all that. And in this story, the moral is, and I might as well use Swiftian language, though he wouldn't use exactly this word, but Swift would have no problem with it. What Gulliver discovers, what Swift discovered, is that the high and mighty need other people to piss on their enemies, but they don't like it. And so Swift found himself rejected. But it can't be the case that this is a book that is either to be read like a child or to be read 
with the sophisticated high political understanding of a historian of the early 18th century, particularly the more distant we are from that time, the more remote these examples appear. Gulliver's Travels has lasted and is still completely readable today, not because it's a children's book and not because it is just an intricate early 18th century satire of Swift's world and Swift's life. It is also something more than that, something between those two things, something that's more complicated than a children's book, but broader and in many ways more accessible than the early 18th century satire. It is a satire, but more than just a satire, a meditation on an allegory about human vanity, human weakness, and particularly its consistent theme, human beings' inability to see themselves for what they really are. It is a satire of or an allegory about the absence of human perspective on the human condition. And the way Swift does it is the classic device of authors in utopian, dystopian fiction to show us how we live in a way that we haven't seen before. He takes the hero of his story, Lemuel Gulliver, the traveller, to faraway imaginary lands that are incredibly remote from our normal experience and yet are recognisably human. There is something about what happens there that is recognisably us. And yet what he discovers there is so different from how we live, it gives him an insight into how weird how we live might look from there. And that also means that the other device of this kind of fiction, when he arrives at these places, he is asked by the people who live there to describe his world. What's it like back in Europe? What's it like back in England? It sounds pretty weird to them. And so he has to tell them how his people live. And in the telling, he hears how strange it would sound to someone who doesn't live like that. How can he explain? How can he justify European court politics to people who have no experience of it and who have found a way to live differently? Swift sends Gulliver to an imaginary world in order to give us a sense of our absence of perspective on our own world. And along the way, there are familiar tales, examples that aren't especially original to Swift and could come from a whole range of different kinds of utopian or dystopian fiction. Not everything in this book suddenly seems new, and some of it isn't new. Some of the tales that he tells are familiar ones. He goes to places where children are reared in common, not by families, because in this country, I think it's Lilliput in this case, it's assumed that families are where children learn corruption and prejudice, much better for them to be raised communally. He goes to places where the citizens are taxed according to their good looks, their attractiveness to the opposite sex, on the assumption that that is the most precious commodity of all. He goes to places where they are baffled to hear that in his country, the way that good behaviour is encouraged is through threats of punishment, capital punishment, imprisonment for bad behaviour. And he's told, why don't you do the obvious thing? If you want people to behave well, don't threaten them for bad behavior, but pay them for good behavior. Why don't you bribe them to be moral? At one point, he has to describe to his interlocutors what a lawyer is. This is towards the end of the book, where he's in a land where they have no such thing as lawyers, because apart from anything else, they're incapable of telling a lie. And so they want to know, what are these things called lawyers? I don't think I've ever read a, a utopian or dystopian work that has a good word to say about lawyers. Lawyers are always getting it in the neck 
in these kind of books. And Swift says, or rather Gulliver says, this is what a lawyer is, I quote, a society of men among us, bred up from their youth in the art of proving by words multiplied for the purpose that white is black and black is white, accordingly as they are paid. That's a lawyer. And frankly, that line could come from a wide range of different kinds of books in this genre, the faraway tale of a traveler who sees his own world through the eyes of people who are completely baffled by it. And yet so much of what's in Gulliver's Travels couldn't come from any other book. A lot of it is completely original and weird, seriously weird, haunting, mysterious, Sometimes it feels profound. Sometimes it just feels mad. It is a much, much stranger book than almost any other book in this genre, partly because of the variety of what it does, but partly because actually as it goes along, it gets weirder and weirder. It's definitely a book that gets more mysterious the further into it you get. It comes in four parts. There are four journeys that are being described, and each journey is a bit weirder than the one before, culminating in the fourth, which is the heart of the book and is what makes it completely, hauntingly, timelessly magnificent. That's when Gulliver goes to the land of the talking horses. But before that, he goes to places, the better known bits of the book, of tiny people, of giant people, of people who float. Each of them in a different way is an inversion of traditional perspective. So this is a book about inversions of perspective. To start with, a tiny world seen by a giant, Gulliver. Then a giant world seen by a tiny person, Gulliver goes to the land of the giants. Then in the third part, he goes to four different places, each of which is an upside down world, a top to bottom world, a bottom to top world, or a back to front world. In one of them, he sees back into history. In another, he gets a glimpse of what a timeless or eternal future might look like. And then finally, you get the animal to human inversion, the world of the talking horses and the bestial humans. I'll go through them in sequence, but I think the fourth one is the one that makes sense of what comes before. The first one, Lilliput, the land of the tiny people, where a lot of the best known stories in the book come from, some of them involving urination and defecation, the ones that children love. It's probably the most obvious bit of the book. It is both the most obvious satire, but also the most obvious inversion. And it also, I think, illustrates most clearly Gulliver, the imaginary traveler, his particular gifts as a narrator. It's very straightforward and it's very clear. As soon as you're there, you know what you're dealing with. And Gulliver has this peculiar double quality which you want in a narrator in a story like this, which is he is both endlessly curious. He arrives in the land of the Lilliputians and he wants to know everything about it. He wants to know how it works. And he describes it in real detail. And he's particularly interested in scales and measurements. He tells you how big things are in inches. He gets you to imagine how it would look like relative to him when he stands up. How high do these people come on him? How high do their palaces come on him? How many of the ships in their fleet can he pick up in his hand? Endless attention to detail. He is fascinated by Lilliput. He's also weirdly incurious. 
in the sense that he's pretty unfazed by taking a journey and finding himself in a country where the people are just a few inches high. He's unfazed and he's sort of unbothered. He's puzzled, but he doesn't run away and he's not terrified. He has moments of fear and confusion. But on the whole, he just wants to know more about it. And he has this peculiar attention to detail, which means that the really big question, which is what the hell happened to me and what the hell is going on here, is the one he never asks because it would get in the way of the story. You could be thrown by constantly thinking, this doesn't make any sense. He's a narrator who just takes for granted, it does make a certain kind of sense. Here I am. My job is to report back what I found. And it's helped by the device, which is he actually spends quite a lot of time, and it's easily the most boring parts of the book, describing how he got there, a semi-plausible sea voyage where this thing happened and then that thing happened and he was with these sailors, but then he had to go onto this boat and then they were shipwrecked and they had to take a smaller boat and then they got stranded at sea and so on. And he does that with equivalent detail. It's boring. It doesn't add much to the story, but it's part of the verisimilitude of the story, which is he doesn't really shift register in describing being on a strange but real and realistic ship to finding himself in a completely strange, utterly unrealistic, but the way he reports it, plausible world. He's a recognizable type of traveler. He's a recognizable type of man. He's the kind of man who, if you asked, how did you get to Shangri-La, would say, well, it's interesting you should ask me that because I was planning to go on the A47, but the A47's got roadworks on it. So I took the A14. And then if you take the A338, you actually find you can get there in almost as much time. And by the time he's finished talking, you've forgotten that the question was, how did you get to Shangri-La? That's Gulliver. And he wakes up in Lilliput among the tiny people. And he tells you in amazing detail how their world works or how it works as seen by him. And there are all of these practical questions, including how does he defecate? Or rather, how do the Lilliputians experience that? But also, how does he sleep? What, how are they going to make him a bed? How is he going to exist in this world? And it's charming and it's quaint. It also has, in that part of the book, the most obvious, that is, the most straightforward political satire. It is an inversion of perspective. The giant Gulliver sees in the Lilliputians what has come to be called, what was christened by Freud, the narcissism, the vanity of small differences. The Lilliputians are a divided people. They have court politics in which they have parties, and the parties are the Tories and the Whigs, or they are proxies for the Tories and the Whigs. And they hate each other, and there is intrigue, and there is bitter infighting, and so on. It is a classic description of a partisan world. It's just a tiny partisan world. Gulliver Swift says of the, the party politics in Lilliput, I quote, the animosities between these two parties run so high that they will neither eat nor drink nor talk with each other. It's red state, blue state America. What divides the Lilliputians? Well, the height of their shoes. One party are the high heel party. Their shoes are slightly built up. And the other party are the low heel party. Their shoes are slightly closer to the ground. And it is pretty obvious what Swift is doing here. As seen from Gulliver's enormous height, these differences don't exist. The tiny people 
in their tiny shoes has tiny differences in height. And yet the two parties have been fighting each other simply on the basis of that. It is clearly, from Gulliver's perspective, absurd. The high shoe people in this are the Tories, because at one point Gulliver says it's believed in Lilliput that having high shoes is consistent with reverence for the ancient constitution. But it's just shoes. Something similar goes on with the other celebrated example of the satire of the vanity of small differences in this book, which is the fight that's been going on in Lilliput for generations. The, the big shoe, little shoe fight is more recent, but for at least a century or more, the country has been riven with doctrinal difference and war over how you eat an egg. The big Indians, who are the people who think you crack it at the big end, and the little Indians, who are the people who think you crack it at the narrower, smaller end, have been fighting each other for much longer than any living person can remember about the question of how you eat an egg. And this is thought to be a satire, a pretty crude, heavy-handed satire of the English Reformation. And I take the egg here to be a reference of some kind to fertility, because one interpretation of this is that the story that explains the origin of the dispute is actually a parody of Henry VIII. It turns out that many, many generations ago, a prince was eating his egg the traditional way, which was the big end way. And then he had an accident and he cut his hand. And so the prince and his father, the emperor, announced that from now on, because this is a very bad sign, they're going to overturn the established order and insist that the people follow their example and turn their eggs around and eat little end first instead. And Gulliver recounts that in the traditions of Lilliput, the people were very, very unhappy about this. They had grown up in a big end world, and many of them clung on to big endian traditions long past the point where the state had made that illegal and were sanctioning those who tried to cling to the old ways and forced little endism on them. And this is the basis of what are effectively ongoing wars of religion. Henry VIII, trying to have an heir, was married to one woman, in the end gave that up and married another woman. And on the basis of that, you got the English Reformation and you got the creation of a new church and a new religious order, Anglicanism, off the back of which, though England wasn't riven by civil war, religious dissent and religious controversy fed through the life of the people for nearly two centuries. It's clear what Swift is doing here. It's quite effective on one level, but on another level, it's too crude, and it doesn't really work. The vanity of small differences is over-egged in this story, particularly the high-shoe, low-shoe story, because you don't need to be Gulliver to think it's ridiculous. It's like a, a double false perspective. The giant can see the difference between having a high heel and a low heel from his perspective is nothing. It doesn't exist. But the Lilliputians should probably be able to see that too. After all, even if you are a Lilliputian, it's not that big a difference between having a higher shoe or a lower shoe, and yet they're still fighting over it. The big end, little end story, if it is a satire of the origins of the English Reformation, Swift was a loyal Anglican clergyman. So yeah, maybe in its historical origins, this religion has an absurd beginning. But by the time Swift is defending it, it's not absurd, and it's not absurd for Swift. This is religion. It's not just an egg. 
it's almost too much. The satire is almost overlaid. But it's also in keeping with that part of the book. It is quite quaint, which is not true of the next part of the book. So when he moves from the land of the tiny people to the land of the giant people, he moves from Lilliput to Brobdingnag. These are all quite hard names to say. The tone changes because what was funny on the whole now becomes on the whole terrifying. It is much scarier to be a tiny person among giants than to be a giant among tiny people. And Gulliver discovers in Brobdingnag that he is incredibly vulnerable. In Lilliput, he is a bit vulnerable, not least he needs these tiny people to feed him. But when he's in the world of the giants, it's also the world of giant animals. He becomes the plaything of cats and mice and insects, and he might be eaten by a dog. And it is terrifying. I mean, it might just be me. I have a lifelong fear of imagined worlds of bigger-than-human-sized animals being the plaything of a cat, I think probably is the worst thing that could happen to a person. Gulliver, as well as being weirdly unfazed by his travels, is also incredibly brave. So when, when a dog comes for him, he tries to fight it with his sword. And he, you know, in each of these battles with one of these animals, it's a battle to the death, and he's determined to display his valor and come out on top. But it is viscerally uncomfortable to imagine what the natural world looks like if you are tiny relative to creatures that you are used to being able to dominate, and also creatures that don't care about you at all. But the real discomfort, certainly for Gulliver in this, is not his encounters with animals, it's with giant human beings. And the discomfort is essentially disgust. It's not fear, it's disgust, because he also becomes the plaything of the humans in this world. To them, he's a little man they can put in the palm of their hand. He, he's quaint. He's not quaint in his own mind. But to them, he's a, he's a trivial object, a curiosity. He can be displayed in fairs. You can make money. He's a freak. But he's also fun to play around with. He's fun for children to play with. He's fun for grown-ups to play with. In one of the scenes in the book, he's being passed around by the ladies in the court of Brobdingnag, and they're having fun with him and one of the things they think it would be fun to do is to get him to sit on their nipples and so they they place him on their nipples and ask him to sit there and the implication is they enjoy this and find it slightly erotic gulliver does not find it slightly erotic he finds it completely appalling and horrifying consistent with the theme of this part of the book which is if you get up very, very close to anything recognizably human, particularly to any part of the human body, it is disgusting. In Brobdingnag, Gulliver's experience of the human form, nipples, faces, feet, hair, is repulsion. Because that close to something that big is to see it in one sense, close up for what it really is close up, which is mottled and greasy and hairy and scarred. He says, this is Gulliver, this is Swift, this made me reflect upon the fair skins of our English ladies who appear so beautiful to us because they are of our own size and their defects are not to be seen 
but through a magnifying glass. Where we find the smoothest and whitest skins look rough and coarse and ill-coloured. This is the magnifying glass world, and this is the world where Gulliver gets to see the vanity of human beauty in his world, because none of it, none of it, can survive scrutiny. There is a misogynist streak to this, because it does seem to be the female form close up that he's particularly repulsed by. I don't know with Swift. I, I dipped into the the online world of arguments about who he really was and maybe what his sexuality was. He was never married. It's not clear whether he did or didn't have sexual relationships. It's not clear what his sexual attraction was. But he does seem to be repulsed in this book through Gulliver by the female form, but not just the female form. There are aspects of the male form too that are repugnant in this book. It reminds me of a line from Montaigne. Montaigne, in one of his essays, says, as a piece of mocking advice to humans, to his readers, if you find yourself really love-struck, you are just consumed by a passion for another human being, and maybe it's consummated, maybe it's not consummated, maybe it's returned, maybe it's not returned, but your problem is it's taken you over. It's taken you over body and soul. You can't think about anything else but the beloved. You dream night and day about the beloved. There is one surefire cure for that kind of infatuation. Ideally, you will do it in reality, but if you can't, you just have to do it in your imagination. The cure is to strip that person naked and get up as close to their body as you can and scrutinize it in detail. Cast your eye over them as closely as you can, studying every little nook and cranny. And by the time you've finished with the human form from head to toe, you will no longer be love-struck. That's Gulliver's experience too. Is there a wider moral to it? I think there is, in a sense. It's a kind of inversion of the saying. I think this is anachronistic, but I think it makes sense in this context. The familiar saying that if you do something with too much attention to detail, you won't be able to see the wood for the trees. So that, or the forest for the trees, as it's sometimes put. What that old saying means is if you're undertaking a project and you get preoccupied with the detail and you break it down into these little tasks, you maybe miss the bigger picture. You forget what it is that you're meant to be doing, what the overall goal is. This is taking that one stage nearer, one stage deeper, another level of detail. If you get really, really, really close to something, it's not that you can't see the wood for the trees. You can't see the tree for the wood or for the bark. If you're right up against the bark of the tree, all you can see are the knots and undulations and all of the flaws and all of the detail. You lose sight of the fact that you are dealing with what, from another perspective, is a single integral object, something that is whole. And I think Swift, through Gulliver, is saying here that the human body, the human form, is something similar. We take for granted our own integrity, bodily integrity, maybe even moral integrity, because we see ourselves from a particular perspective where we are whole to ourselves. Gulliver's experience in the land of the giants is that we are not whole in that sense. What we are is just an amalgamation of all sorts of flaws and 
crevices and moles and greasy spots. And the whole thing, the integral thing, can't be seen. He has a range of these experiences. He listens to music in Brobding Mag. What he's told is beautiful music, but it's so loud and overwhelming that all he hears is a cacophony. At one point, he's looking at a huge, magnificent statue, and then a bit of it breaks off and lands on the ground, and it's the little finger of this statue, and it's four feet long. And when he sees the four-feet-long finger, the whole thing suddenly seems absurd. A four-foot-long finger is as ridiculous as a very, very tiny person in Gulliver's mind. This is the vanity of big differences. It falls apart if you study it close up. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And then in the third part of the book, it moves from a satire or a meditation on the vanity of the human form to a meditation on the vanity of the human intellect. The third part of the book is where Swift mocks intellectual pretensions. And in this part, Gulliver visits four different places. So you get quite a lot of boring detail about how he gets from A to B to C to D. The first of these is the floating world, Laputa, where people are with their heads in the clouds. It's the land that floats above the land that it's governing, where the people never come down to ground level, and where they are always dreaming about things that are detached from reality. So this is the place where Gulliver tries to get a suit made. And they're so preoccupied with theory and mathematics that they design him a suit according to the latest principles of mathematics that doesn't fit him because they've forgotten that actually it has to suit the human form. Laputa is the place where people, when they have a conversation, get so wrapped up in their abstract theories of philosophy and mathematics that they have to pay people called flappers with bladders full of hot air, dried out bladders full of hot air, to blow that air in their faces, to wake them up to reality, because otherwise they lose touch with reality altogether. Someone effectively has to fart in their face to remind them to stop philosophizing. That's the head in the cloud world. Underneath it is another world, Balnibari. I don't know what these names mean. That's the place where there's a different kind of intellectual pretension. It's the land of the people with projects and schemes. They are grounded. This is effectively a satire, not of philosophy, but of science. 
they are grounded in a recognizably real world. They're not floating up in the clouds. But they are dissatisfied with that world, and they want to imagine better versions of it. But their imagined better versions of it are all free-floating fantasies. Here, he goes to a place which is clearly meant to be a mocking portrayal of the Royal Society, which had been going for a couple of generations at this point and was the, the home of English science and English scientific endeavor. And in Gulliver's Travels, Gulliver's version that he encounters of this Academy of the Scientists is where people come up with clearly, obviously ridiculous schemes because they have lost touch with reality. Their head is in the clouds in a different way, not because they are floating above, but because they wish they were floating above. Most famously, in this version of the Royal Society, people are trying to extract sunbeams from cucumbers. A lot of this is a play on words. So these people are people with projects. Everyone in the academy has a project, their own pet project, which means they are projecting in the way that we might say, stop projecting, stop imagining that the world is as you would like it to be because of who you are. That's what this kind of science is for Swift. There are also people with schemes. Everyone has a scheme, a scheme to improve this, a scheme to improve that, to improve transport or education or language. They have schemes, so that makes them schemers. They are actually, these scientists, schemers, operators. And they're also people, because they're schemers, who see schemes in other projects too. They're paranoid. They're conspiracy theorists. And all of this, broadly speaking, is a satire of the Whigs. That is, to use a more contemporary term, it is a satire of the progressive mindset, the improving mindset. That is the mindset that thinks the job of politics or of science or of anything else is to improve the world, improve human nature, improve the human experience, make things more efficient, make it work better. These people for Swift are schemers, they are projecting, and they are conspiracy theorists, though he doesn't use that term. Some of it is crude. Some of it is weirdly prescient and creepy. One of the things that Gulliver discovers in the academy is a room where one of these professors has decided that he's going to create an artificial language machine, which is going to be capable of writing any genre you like, philosophy, romantic fiction, mathematics, musical theory, simply by inputting what it is you want and then getting the machine to jumble up all of the words and all of the tropes and all of the grammatical forms in the language, all of which are there in the machine ready to be rearranged. And then the machine will produce any kind of writing you want. And this writing will be an improvement on human writing because it will have drawn on the full range of the language. It goes into a room and it's a machine, being Gulliver, he's always telling you, the dimensions and the details. It's a 20 foot by 20 foot machine made up of an incredibly intricate overlapping set of wires and levers and pulleys. It's impossible to fathom how it works. It's so complicated. And in it, he is told, all of the words in the language, I quote, in their several moods, tenses and declensions have already been inputted so that if you pull various levers, the machine will rearrange the words for you and give you plausible text. It is the 18th century chat GPT. There are also people in this world 
who want to improve language in other ways. And this is this is that's creepy. This is slightly funnier, but recognizable. Because language is really inefficient. So the progressives, the improvers, the schemers, the projectors are always wanting to streamline language to make it less ambiguous, less corruptible, more pristine. They don't do it in this case through jargon, which is one way you could go. They do it by stripping it back. So there's a project where they try and strip language of all of the words that are unhelpfully ambiguous or obscure. They take out the adjectives. They take out the adverbs. They try and get a really, really streamlined, incorruptible language. But they never get there because every word they're left with somehow isn't quite right. So they keep going until they've taken all the words out of the language. So now this is a language with no words. And then they realize, of course, the way to communicate is not through words, but through objects. So why don't you give everyone a giant sack of objects that they can carry around with them? And they communicate by pulling out of the bag whatever it is that they want to convey, whether it's a pair of glasses or whether it's a boot. Wouldn't that be more efficient? Then he moves on to the third world in the third part of this section of Gulliver's Travels, which is called Glubdubdrib, and it's the land of the magicians. And here, one of the magicians that he meets allows him another opportunity to reverse the perspective of the traditional human experience and to look back in time, to look back in history, to trace back in history the origins of things in the present, to go back as far as the ancients, to see Socrates and Plato, to see the greats and to see the nobility and the majesty of the ancient world, but also to see more recently how the modern world, with all of its pretensions, including all of its pretensions to grandeur and grandiosity, can be exposed simply by going back in time. Because you see that behind every grand event and every so-called great person is usually something accidental or something trivial or worse, something completely contrived. If in the previous world, Swift has given us progressive conspiracy theorizing, the schemers who see in every attempt to block their extracting sunbeams from cucumbers, a conspiracy to thwart them, this is the world of conservative conspiracy theory. Gulliver looks back and sees the majesty of the ancient world, but he sees in the modern world a series of plots or contrivances to create the appearance of grandeur and greatness, including, by implication, among the Whigs and the progressives, which is actually founded on, at best, nothing, and at worst, something worse than nothing. He sees through the magic of looking back in time and seeing what lies behind, what lies behind, what lies behind now. What he has shown is that the secret causes of any of the great events that have surprised the world, which is how he puts it, are often nothing like as great as the events themselves. What you see, I quote, is how a whore can govern the backstairs, the backstairs a council, the council a senate. Behind what lies behind what lies behind is nothing nearly as grand as what we're presented with. And the same, he says, for the grand families of the age, particularly the nouveau families of the age, with their pretensions and their titles. The magician shows him where their status comes from. And he says, what you see quite quickly, if you go back in their line, is there's usually a varlet or a charlatan or a pickpocket or worse. No one is as grand as they pretend to be. And then finally, 
in the third part, he goes to the land of Lugnag, which is the land of the immortals. This is where some people live forever. And what he sees there is another exposure of human vanity and pretension, the classic dilemma of immortality. Do you want to live forever or not? The answer being probably, it depends on whether this is the secret of eternal youth, or what I'm going to be doing is endlessly aging. In this world, immortality is endless aging. People live a normal human lifespan, so past the age of 70 or 80, they are getting pretty decrepit. Past the age of 120 or 150, they are basically ruined. But it goes on and on. The vanity here is the assumption that somehow it should be possible to preserve the best of yourself. It's a recognizable Silicon Valley vanity today. The people in Silicon Valley, the young men who are seeking immortality, are presumably seeking to preserve the eternal version of themselves as 30-something tech titans. In this part of Gulliver's Travels, immortality gives you the nightmare of endless, infinite decrepitude. And Gulliver comes back from that journey, and that's quite the journey. But he's still more or less unchanged by his experiences. He's still the A47, no, there are roadworks guy. It's the fourth journey that changes him, completely changes him, because the fourth one is different from the others, because it is deeper, it's more mysterious, it's less obvious what's going on. And he is baffled by it. On the other journeys, he's not really baffled by it. He gets the satire that he is mouthing. In this one, he's properly bemused to arrive at the land of, and this is the most unpronounceable name of all, but I'm taking what Google tells me, the land of the Hunahims. They are the speaking horses. But when he arrives there, they are not the first people he encounters. Before that, he encounters another group who are the Yahoos. So the Hunahims are the superior caste, the master caste, the masters of this place, and they are horses. This is a land governed by horses, and they are horses with reason, with the ability not just to communicate, but to use language elegantly and sophisticatedly. And they live elegant and sophisticated lives as befits such elegant and sophisticated creatures. Horses are beautiful. Horses are actually beautiful even close up. They are strong, they are powerful, and in this world, they are also dignified, and they reason elegantly in order to live in a way that suits who they are and what they want to achieve, and Gulliver is awestruck by them. They seem like a model of a form of existence that he's never encountered before. Nothing on any of the other places give him the feeling that he's seen how we should live. But before he meets them, he meets the yahoos who are bestial and hairy and smelly and violent. They are only fit for menial work. And what baffles him and terrifies him, and this is where he is really afraid, is that he, he starts to see himself in the yahoos because he recognizes that though they don't seem to share any of the forms of human reason or eloquence, Physically, they look human-like. They are at least humanoid. It's hard to tell because they're so dirty and they're so matted and they don't wear clothes and they behave in such bestial ways. But over time, he comes to realize that were he to take all his clothes off and were he to live among the yahoos, he would look like them because he is one of them or rather they are like him. So what's going on here? And it's the Hunahims who tell Gulliver what's going on. 
they explain to him the thing that is so troubling him, which is, well, are they human or aren't they human? This is a world in which the capacity to reason, to think, to use language coherently and elegantly belongs to the powerful, the strong, the dignified creatures, the horses. Human beings are weak. They're weak in body. They're infirm. They're dirty. They're messy. They're smelly. Their bodies don't really suit their circumstances. The horses mock them, their stupid teeth that don't really work, and their spindly legs that mean they keep falling over. They're not particularly strong. They get sick a lot. They're easily knocked over. The human form is ridiculous. So the horses say, why, why would reason attach to that form? Reason would belong to people like us, elegant, dignified, restrained. Obviously, they say, as horses, horses are the kind of creatures who would be able to think straight. It's impossible to imagine something like a yahoo using the power of reason. So the horses say to Gulliver, what are you? Because you seem to be a reasoning yahoo. And they come to realize that what a reasoning yahoo is, is a creature that uses language and such intelligence as it has to cover up its weakness. And that is the human condition. That is what it means to be human. We are creatures who use our powers of reason to pretend to be something that we're not. Above all, we try to dress up our weaknesses as strength, our ill health as health, our ugliness as beauty, our greediness and our stupidity as dignity and intelligence. The Hunahims, the horses, really are dignified and intelligent. The Yahoos, they can't do anything because they lack the power to reason. The humans, of whom there is only one example here, Gulliver, they're not rational creatures. What they are are rationalizing creatures. To be human in this world, part four of Gulliver's Travels, is to be revealed as a creature that only ever rationalizes its own weaknesses, its own prejudices, its own inability to see itself for what it really is. And what's so haunting about this description of what it means to be human is that it's true. There was a book published just over a decade ago by the psychologist Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind, which says that human beings are not rational creatures. We are rationalizing creatures. What we do is we rationalize our instinctive, you might almost say bestial responses to things. And the analogy that he uses is that we're like lawyers. We're like lawyers who will take any case and put the best possible gloss on it. And that's what we use our reason to do. We are the people who are not just trained, but actually inherently wired to argue that black is white and white is black, because our intelligence is at the service of our animal instincts, and I think as Swift would say, of our weakness. And Gulliver when he sees this, when he sees that what we are and what we can only ever be as thinking yahoos is rationalizing creatures, not rational creatures, not noble creatures, not dignified creatures, but creatures who are always in denial of what we really are. Because what are we really? Gulliver says it. We're yahoos. We're smelly, hairy, bestial, menial, unstable animals with the power of speech. He's destroyed by it. When he returns from this voyage, he can't cope. 
He's seen something that he can't unsee and also he can't deal with. He no longer knows how to live in the world of the humans. He goes back to his wife and children as he does after each voyage. In the first three voyages, he goes back to his long-suffering wife and children. And then after a while, he gets bored and he says, I want to go traveling again. He doesn't go traveling again after this trip because it's broken him. But also he finds he can no longer live with his wife and children because he can't bear the smell of them. He sees them as yahoos. He sees them for what they really are. They are bestial to him. This is far more traumatic for him than being placed on the nipple of a giant woman in the court of Brobdingnag. His actual wife becomes repugnant to him. He can't live among her. And actually he finds himself going off and hanging out in the stables in the fantastical hope that he can somehow access the dignity of the horses. But this is the real world, and the horses don't talk. He doesn't know what to do, and so he retreats into himself. He becomes a kind of recluse. He decides that almost all human projects are vanity. And once you know that what we are is rationalizing yahoos, we should be very, very careful about undertaking any project or any scheme, or any endeavor, no matter how moral or progressive it is, no matter how conservative it is, because almost everything we do, we're going to dress up as something it's not. We're going to pretend that it's better than it is, because what else can reasoning yahoos do except pretend that sickness is health and pretend that mottled, greasy ugliness is fair beauty? So Gulliver acquires two qualities after his final voyage. One is a kind of instinctive repugnance at the human condition, but particularly the vanity of the human condition. His poor wife, who's only just been there waiting for him, suddenly to him becomes this sort of symbol of human vanity. He can't bear to be around her, and she doesn't even realize that she smells. It's, it's awful. It's grim on every level. So there is a sort of repugnance there, not just disdain, but actual revulsion. And it's a revulsion at human pretension. And at the same time, he acquires a sort of restraint. He stops traveling. He stops going on these grand adventures. He stops trying to discover new worlds. He stays where he is. And he becomes deeply suspicious and skeptical of any schemes, of any promises of new adventure of any idea that there are more worlds out there to discover. So Gulliver comes back from his last voyage, prisoner to the twin instincts of repugnance and restraint. What is that? It's not a political philosophy. I don't think there is a political philosophy where you say, tenet one is repugnance, tenet two is restraint. But it is a recognizable political type, and I think Swift is conscious of this in a way. What's the word for that political type? What what does Gulliver become after the fourth voyage? The one voyage that would change anyone. The one voyage where he actually sees something which isn't just hidden from us because of our lack of perspective, because we can't imagine what it would be like to be giant or tiny, where he sees something that can't be unseen. You can forget what it's like to be in Lilliput. But Gulliver can't forget what it's like to live in a world where the dignity and grace of the physiognomy and physicality of the horse is married to reason, and the grotesqueness and the ugliness of the physiognomy and physicality of the human form is divorced from reason. He can't find the space between the two. 
repugnance and restraint, what Gulliver becomes is what Swift became, a Tory. Coming up next week in this series on the history of ideas about the great political fictions, I'm going to be talking about another play, this one originally in German, and in German it's called Maria Stuart by Schiller, an extraordinary drama about an extraordinarily dramatic relationship and a matter of life and death, the relationship between Queen Elizabeth I of England and Mary Queen of Scots. To find out more about this week's episode and future episodes, do please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. And we will be letting you know very soon about how you can sign up to the newsletter that we're going to be putting out to accompany this series and future series with guides to the texts, to further reading, interesting links, writing by me and others. All that's coming soon. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.